My name's Frank, uh, I'm an elder here. If I haven't met you before, then um, it's great to see you. Um, and if I do know you, it's great to see you as well. Um, if you are new here, you might not know, but we're in a, a series in the book of Nehemiah. Um, and we're in week five and chapter five of that series. Um, if you weren't around for the first week, um, I'd highly recommend um, going onto the Hallows website, um, hallowschurch.org. Um, so yeah, with that said, uh, let me try and give you a quick recap if you're new to the book of Nehemiah so you can get a sense of where we are. So, the book of Nehemiah, uh, it happens, or the events in it happen about 150 years after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC. The Babylonians, after destroying the city, they took most of the residents into exile, um, and the exile lasted about 70 years. And during that time, the Persians, they rose up, they became the new superpower in the world at that time, defeated the Babylonians. So now, the Jewish exiles are under the power of the Persians. And in around 530 BC, King Cyrus of Persia gave a large group of Jewish exiles permission to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild it. So this group, they went back to the city and they were... Uh, really successful in two projects. So the first project was they, re- they, re- they rebuilt the temple, um, and then the second project was they kind of re-familiarized themselves with the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, um, of, um, sometimes known as, as, as God's law. So they, they kind of relearned it, they, re- they kind of reacquainted themselves with God's law in the first five books of the Bible. And then they went for their third project. You know, they're, they're on a roll, everything's going well. Uh, and the third project was the rebuilding of the city walls, which was a huge, a huge project and a very important project because cities back then were only as strong as their walls. So you had to have big, strong walls if you were going to have a safe city. So it's a really big project. And they start this project, they're building it up. But at this point, it's about, about 40 to 50 years after the original exiles were sent back, there's a new king of Persia. And this king did, didn't know anything about King Cyrus's edict sending uh, the exiles back. He didn't know the backstory. Um, and he saw these walls getting higher and higher, and he, out of fear, he ordered that those walls be torn back down again. He didn't want Jerusalem to become too powerful and too strong. And this is where Nehemiah enters the story. So he's from the tribe of Judah. So Jerusalem was his home, his capital city. Um, and he's also the cupbearer to the king at the time, after Xerxes. Um, so he had this intimate relationship with the king. He would go in and he would drink the wine in his presence before handing it over to the king. And they would have often talked in quite a, a, an intimate setting. So when Nehemiah hears what's, what happened to the walls, the fact that they've been torn down, he makes a really brave move and he goes in um, to see the king. And he asks for permission to go and do the very same thing that that same king had basically said no to about 10 years earlier. So it was a really brave move. It could have cost him his life. But we read that the king was, was incredibly favorable to Nehemiah. He sent him back to Jerusalem with everything he would need to rebuild the city. And we find out that the reason for that favor, the reason why the king was so kind to Nehemiah, is because God's gracious hand was on him, and God's gracious hand was on this project. So... Nehemiah, chapters 1 to 4, it, it tells this amazing story of how they get off to such a good start. Even, even though there's opposition, 
they're doing really well. They're a diverse bunch that are united in this, in this project, and they get the walls up to about half the height in, you know, in no time. They're making really, really great progress. So it's, it's, the whole book's had a very feel-good factor up until this point. But then you come to chapter five, and it's a, it's a difficult chapter. It's like the moment in a film where like, everything's going great, and then all of a sudden, things take a nosedive, and it goes from like, sunshine and smiles to, to struggle and strife. It's, it's a really sobering chapter for us because it confronts us with the fact that our world and our reality is deeply broken. You see, the Bible is so shockingly real. If you ever read the Bible cover to cover, you'll see that it gives an unflin- unflinchingly honest portrayal of humanity. So when we look around us, despite the deniable beauty and good, we must conclude that the Bible is right in its, in its assessment of our world. There is something deeply broken and something deeply wrong. We know deep down that this isn't the way things should be. So as we, as we study Nehemiah 5 together, I want to try and show how this chapter helps us to think rightly about the brokenness of our world and then consider our own personal response. And before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. God, as we dive into chapter 5 of Nehemiah, um, this chapter where it's a little bit of a U-turn from what's been going on in in chapters 1 to 4 and confronts us with the the brokenness and the suffering and the the hardships that people face in this life, uh, that we face in this life. Um, I really pray, Lord, that you would um, give us um, your eyes to see what's going on here and give us wisdom as to know how to make sense of it and then to know how to to live it out and um, apply um, some of the things that we learn here to our own lives. I pray that in your name. Amen. So here's how I'm going to try and break down Nehemiah 5. So in um, verses 1 to 13... Point number one is problem solved, question mark. Problem two is the heart of the problem. And then verses 14 to 19, a personal response. So let's dive into that first point then, problem solved, question mark. So the beginning of chapter five, it's jarring after the positivity of chapters one to four. To Nehemiah's dismay, he he finds out about systemic injustice among God's people. If the problem in Nehemiah 4 was all the opponents outside, like the issue in chapter 5 is all the stuff that's going on inside God's people, inside the walls of the city. And we learn in verse 3 that the source of the issue was a famine. So food was in short supply, which meant that demand was high, which meant meant, um, inflated prices. If that wasn't bad enough, the Persians had a punishingly high tax on the people. So the people were remortgaging their property to afford food and to try and pay these taxes. And when that failed, shockingly, they're resorting to selling their children as slaves. So if verses 1 to 5 outlines the problem, verse 6 tells us who was to blame. Nehemiah points the finger at the nobles and the officials who were charging their countrymen in verse 7, 
selling people who had sold themselves to them, verse 8, and taking the people's property when they couldn't pay, verse 11. And then Nehemiah directly points out in verse 10 that what they were doing wasn't just against the people, but it was against God, showing that they didn't fear God and his good commands. Let me give you two ways that they were breaking God's laws. So number one, they were lending with interest. This directly violated Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8, which says, If there is a poor person among you, one of your brothers, within any of your city gates in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Secondly, selling their own people into slavery directly violated Leviticus 25, 39 to 40, which says this. If your brother among you becomes destitute and sells himself to you, you must not force him to be a slave. Sorry, you must not force him to do slave labor. Let him stay with you as a hired worker or temporary resident. He may work for you until the year of Jubilee. So, so far in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen Nehemiah the prayer warrior, we've seen Nehemiah the diplomat, we've seen Nehemiah the project manager, we've seen Nehemiah the pastor, we've seen Nehemiah the general, and now we see Nehemiah the lawyer gathers the people together and he makes his case against the nobles and the officials and his argument is so good, it's so forceful, it's, it's so pointed that they fall silent. They, they haven't got a word to say back against Nehemiah. And then he makes his closing argument and he urges them to do what is right and give people back their property and their money. And Nehemiah is successful in his defense of the people. In verse 12, the nobles and officials say, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And then, Nehemiah again, proving that he's a good lawyer, he gets the nobles and officials to swear an oath that they will follow through on their promises. And then he dramatically shakes out his robe, inviting God to shake the nobles and officials if they break their end of the deal. So at this point, we can be left thinking, great, Nehemiah solved the problem. The nobles and officials are going to agree to make things right. The people are going to have more money and they'll be able to buy food. This is, this is good. This is great, right? But anyone familiar with the Old Testament would be hesitant to celebrate at this point. Although Nehemiah is to be commended for how he handles the situation, any thoughtful reader of this text will have some major reservations about this commitment to social change made here in verse 13. What do I mean? Well, if the Old Testament teaches us anything, it's that human beings are incapable of long-term change. They're stuck in a cycle of obedience, rebellion, conviction, confession, confession, and commitment. 
And it goes on and on and on. They live in obedience to God's good laws and society flourishes. But then they rebel against God. God brings them conviction of, of their sins. The people are cut to the heart. They confess their sins. God hears their prayers. He forgives them. And then they make a commitment. They say, from this day forward, we won't do it again. From this day forward, our obedience will last. But the obedience doesn't last. The obedience lasts for a short time. But then they slide back into rebellion and the cycle starts all over again. So we could read Nehemiah 5, 1 to 13 and conclude that the problem is solved. But the rest of the Old Testament demonstrates that Nehemiah has changed people's behavior temporarily, leaving the root cause of the problem unaddressed. Which brings us to our second point. What is the heart of the problem? Okay, let's consider the heart of the problem from Nehemiah 5 in three key areas. Failure to steward the earth, failure to keep God's law, and failure to care for each other. Okay, firstly then, our Bibles give us a way of seeing the world which fits with the brokenness we see all around us. Genesis 3 teaches us that the famine in Nehemiah 5 is a direct result of sin's corrosive effect on God's good creation. God says to Adam in Genesis 3:17, the ground is cursed because of you. Therefore, the famine that struck, that struck Jerusalem was a direct result of sin and points to a world no longer in the harmonious balance it once was. Secondly, if the story state of things here in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 5 can tempt us to blame God, asking, how could you stand by and let this happen? We would do well to remember that God already has done something about it. In the Old Testament, he gave his law. Often seen in a negative light, God's law is actually a really beautiful thing. It gives guidelines on how to care for the most vulnerable people in society. Psalm 19, 7 and 8 says, The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life, and the precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. If God's people lived out God's law, then poverty, starvation, slavery, and exploitation would all be greatly alleviated. God has done his part in giving the law. It was on the people to uphold it for their well-being and for others' well-being. And thirdly, Nehemiah 5 teaches us about human nature. It draws our attention to human greed with the exorbitant Persian taxes and the nobles and officials profiting off the misery and starvation of the people. It highlights the inhumane practice of slavery, the evil of human trafficking. It shows that humans have a tendency to take advantage of and exploit the most vulnerable in society rather than caring and providing for them. 
And it points to broken financial systems that make the rich richer and the poor poorer. So we've, we've considered humanity's failure in three areas highlighted here in Nehemiah 5. But we're yet to find an answer to the, the question, what is the heart of the problem? What is the root cause of the brokenness we see in our world, in our societies, and in each other? The Bible's explanation for the brokenness of our world our societies and each other focuses squarely on the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Jesus weighs in on this point as well. He says exactly the same thing. He teaches in Mark 7, 21-23 that sin originates in the heart. So the brokenness in our world, it can be traced back to the human heart. The Israelites' inability to obey God's law, even for their flourishing, can be traced back to the human heart. And humans' shocking treatment of one another can also be traced back to the human heart. You could put it this way. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It was the problem of the human heart that meant Nehemiah's noble attempts to fix his broken community and renew people's obedience to God's laws ultimately prove fruitless. We only have to flip ahead in our, in our Bibles. If you flip ahead to Nehemiah chapter 13, you'll see that once again the community has imploded once again, through, through disobedience to God and his laws. Nehemiah 5 gives us the first glimpse that despite Nehemiah's remarkable successes, which were many, Nehemiah will fail in the same area that every other leader of God's people had up until that point. Nehemiah and his forerunners, they all failed in their attempts to change the human heart. You see, the book of Nehemiah is not primarily a book about great leadership. It's not primarily a book about building God's kingdom, although God can teach us a lot about those two topics through the book of Nehemiah. But primarily, the book of Nehemiah, like so many other Old Testament books, can be summed up in this sentence. A well-intentioned godly leader does great things for God but is ultimately unable to change people's hearts. Nehemiah, like so many other Old Testament books, would have left the ancient reader with feelings of yearning and longing as they looked ahead in hope for a leader who would succeed when Nehemiah and others failed. As I mentioned in my introductory sermon on Nehemiah chapter 1, Ancient readers of Nehemiah would have been well aware of the prophecies that had come through prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which were about 100 years before Nehemiah comes onto the scene. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they both spoke of a time 
where God would lead his people back to Jerusalem for the purposes of restoration, rebuilding, and renewal. And in particular, these ancient readers of Nehemiah, they would have known two prophecies off by heart. The first is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, which says this, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. And here it is. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then Ezekiel 36, 24, 27. You would have known this off by heart. And it says this. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land. That's the going back to Jerusalem part. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Can you see what these prophecies are saying? Can you see how relevant they are to the book of Nehemiah? And what Nehemiah is trying to accomplish in Jerusalem? Nehemiah wanted restoration, rebuilding, and renewal. That's, that's what he longed for. He loved, he loved God. He loved God's city. He loved God's people. He knew those prophecies. He knew Jeremiah. He knew Ezekiel. But yet he was unable to fulfill those promises. He wasn't the guy. And although the ancient reader would have been really, really encouraged by reading Nehemiah 1 to 4, when, it, when the ancient reader got to chapter 5, we get the sense that perhaps Nehemiah isn't the one who's going to bring about the kind of heart change that Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak of. Nehemiah was undoubtedly a man who loved God, he loved people. He wanted all the things, all the things of those prophecies to come true, but he ultimately fell short. And you see, Nehemiah is not alone. No human being has the power to change other people's hearts, let alone the power to change their own heart. Now, you might not know this from the way that our Bibles are laid out, which isn't... Um, necessarily chronologically ordered, but Nehemiah is actually chronologically the last history book in the Old Testament. And it goes along with the book of Malachi, the prophetic book, which was also you know, talking about events around that time. So after Malachi and after Nehemiah comes this 400-year silence. 400 years where the people 
are left asking, how long, O Lord? How long until you fulfill your promises to rebuild, restore, and renew us? And then, after that 400-year silence, an eccentric, locust-eating, honey-loving prophet named John the Baptist comes along and he utters these earth-shattering words. I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's Matthew 3:11. And then shortly after John's words, a carpenter from a deadbeat town starts saying things like this. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 3, 3 to 6. And then, fast forward to the end of Jesus' ministry, when the resurrected Jesus appeared in the room, the disciples are stunned. We read in John 20, 22, that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine Someone who knew the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah word for word, reading the stories of Jesus. They would have been wide-eyed as they read these verses, concluding that Jesus is fulfilling Jeremiah and Ezekiel's prophecies. Jesus' ministry, what he accomplished through his death and resurrection, brings the Christian into new life with a new heart, and the Holy Spirit animating everything they do. Jesus is the true Nehemiah. Jesus succeeded in the area that Nehemiah failed. Nehemiah was able to change people's behavior for a time. Jesus fundamentally changes our hearts forever. You see, the good news of the gospel for this passage, in light of this passage, is not go and try harder, which was essentially Nehemiah's message under the old covenant. Change your behavior, make a commitment, try harder, don't disobey God. Old covenant. Jesus' message is come and be born again. Trade your heart of stone for a heart of flesh. Step off the throne of your own heart so that the Holy Spirit can come and sit down on the throne of your life. The Bible's words here about heart change, new life, receiving the Spirit, as glorious and as true as they are, I can't help wondering if I'm all that different from the people under Nehemiah's care. It pains me to say it, but the story of my life, just like Nehemiah and his contemporaries, 
consists of the same endless pattern repeating over and over again. Obedience, rebellion, conviction, confession, and then commitment. Even though I know deep down that God has done a great work of salvation and renewal in me, I still slip up time and time again. And this left me thinking, and as I was preparing for today, it left me thinking, what are, what are we to do with this? If we, if we are living in the, in the fulfillment of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, if we've got new hearts, if we've got the Holy Spirit living in us, then, like, why? Or, or even how? A better question, how can we still sin? How does that even make sense? How, how can we still be men and women that find it so hard to obey God and honor Him? with our lives. Well, thankfully, we're not alone in asking these questions, and the New Testament has got a lot to say on this topic. Firstly, 1 John 1.8 says, if we are without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So according to the Apostle John, even though we're born again in Christ, sin is still a part of every Christian's journey. That got me thinking, you know, it, it, it caused me to breathe a sigh of relief. You know, I was like, phew, you know, I mean, I'm in good company. If, if the disciple that Jesus loves, the Apostle John, if he knew deep down that he was still stuck in that same cycle, okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. But see, it doesn't, doesn't just stop there. Secondly, the New Testament reassures us that, we are, that though we are not abnormal if we sin, Paul comes in in Galatians 5.25 and gives us a different angle. And this angle says this, since we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So if John over here comforts us, you're still going to sin, that's okay. Even, I, even I'm still sinning, I'm the Apostle John, the, the Apostle that Jesus loved. Over here, Paul challenges us. He says, yes, yes, we do all sin, but if we make an effort to keep in step with the Spirit, if we cultivate a life which is obedient to the Holy Spirit, then we can expect to grow and change over time, sinning less frequently and in less blatantly and willfully disobedient ways. And thirdly, we read of God's role in, in all of this. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we've already, cons we've already considered our responsibility in our kind of ongoing sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, keeping in step with the Spirit. Now, now we come to God's role. God's, God's kind of like almost his promise, his, his side of this whole thing. And you see, God is deeply committed to, to a transformation work. He's, he's committed to transforming us. And we are, we are told that this work of transformation will keep continuing, keep continuing, until... One day we, may, we meet God face to face and sin is no more. 
So, returning to Nehemiah 5, we find ourselves in a very similar situation to Nehemiah and the people. So, so they were living in the now, not yet. They were hoping for these, these promises to be fulfilled. We're, we're on the other side of it. We, we're living in the fulfillment of these promises, prophecies. But yet we're still struggling with this internal battle that will, that will continue until we go to meet Christ. So they're in the now and not yet over here. And we're in the now and the not yet over here. So in light of this, how does one live in the now and not yet? Especially when it comes to the brokenness of our societies and the brokenness of the systems that we see around us. How do we think wisely and rightly about these things? And this brings us to the third point that we're going to consider together. So the third point is a personal response from verses 14 to 19. So in verses 14 to 19, the focus shifts from the corporate to the personal. And we're given, we're given like a, a, an insider's perspective on Nehemiah's life. And we are kind of revealed, or we, we are shown his, his, his character, his priorities, and his compassion. We learn that Nehemiah was made governor of Judah, and he served in this position for 12 years. And evidently, his predecessors, all the governors that had gone before, they had abused their power. They'd taken food and wine and silver from the people. But Nehemiah, as the new governor, he resolved to, to cut a new path, to not slide into some of the injustices that his previous governors had slipped into. And he did this in four ways. He ruled differently in these four areas. Number one, he never ate the food that was allotted to him, refusing to fatten himself while the people starved. Verse 14 and 18. Although, side note, he was happy to drink the wine. So we, we, know, we knew from chapter 1 that he's a wine connoisseur, so and, and I'm guessing the wine was maybe in, in greater supply than the food at this point. But just thought I'd mention that. Rather than abusing his power, number two, to live a comfortable life, he devoted himself to his job as the overseer of the rebuild project, verse 16. Number three, he leveraged his wealth for the good of the people. He hosted huge dinner parties where he gladly shared what he had with the people, verse 17. And then number four, God's verdict of his life is what mattered most to him, verse 19. So Nehemiah's approach to the brokenness that was all around him was to start with what he could change, not what he couldn't. So he asked himself, what has God given me that I can use, that I can go without, so that I can give and I can share and I can do something to alleviate the suffering and brokenness in my community? He didn't allow himself to become overwhelmed with the scale of the need. He, he understood that as long as he lived his life in a way that honored God, as long as he took ownership of his own personal responsibility to the societal needs in front of him, then he could leave the rest in God's 
hands, content that he had done his bit. Church, I think this is incredibly relevant for us. We find ourselves in a city with some of the richest people in the world living next to those who have nothing. Almost everywhere we turn, we are confronted with the the scourge of drug use, poverty, untreated mental health conditions, hunger, homelessness, and desperation. When Debs and I first moved to Seattle in 2018, we were shocked at what we saw. We were struck by the complexity and the immensity of the need. We knew we wanted to do something about it, but we didn't know how to help. You see, when the, when the size and the scale of the need in front of us can overwhelm us, sometimes we don't know where to start. And the danger is, is that we never start. We can see the problems as so totemic, so immense, and then conclude that even our best efforts won't do anything whatsoever to change our city or our world. Nehemiah gives us such a helpful model to follow. You see, he didn't didn't concern himself with the things that he couldn't control. Instead, he appraised his own life, the things he could control, and then he did what he could with what he had. I think we can all apply the principles that Nehemiah gives us here to our own lives. Number one, what has God given you that you could live without? As the governor, Nehemiah had a food allowance that he could have taken advantage of. He could have treated himself to a four-course breakfast, a four-course lunch, a four-course dinner. And I'm just looking at Andrew Coburg and thinking that he likes the sound of that. Um, he, and, John, and John Stir as well. Uh, he could have done that. He could have, he could have taken full advantage of the food that was, was, that was his as governor. But he chose to go without it. He chose to go without so that he could have more to share with those who were in great need at this, this key time of famine. What do we have that's come to us from the gracious hand of God that we could do without for the sake of our community? It might be money, it might be clothing, furniture, or maybe a second car. And it can also be time as well. What could we go without for the sake of those in need? I was so convicted on this point when I was preparing And I asked myself, could I consciously decide not to take full advantage of the resources that God has blessed me with in this life for the sake of others? Do I really need more outdoor gear? Or could I do with the outdoor gear I already have, which is numerous? Do I need a brand new couch? Or could I shop around and get a second-hand couch? And then steam clean it. Do I really need that delicious bagel for lunch? Or could I buy three soups for the, for the three days, lunch for three days for the same price as that, 
you know, artisan bagel. What would it look like for me to set up a personal bank account into which I place all the money that I have saved from making do without? For the money I didn't spend in outdoor, outdoor gear, for the, the money that I saved with my second-hand couch, with the money that I saved by not having that artisan bagel. What if that account grew to a point where when I was faced with a pressing need, for someone in my community, I was able to generously give. Another option would be to put the money saved through a more modest lifestyle into the Justice and Mercy Fund that we have here at the Hallows. This money is carefully stewarded and it goes to individuals in our communities who have a pressing need. You can actually give directly into this fund through the giving page on our website, halloschurch.org. Perhaps money is tight, but you feel like you've got an ample amount of time with which you can consciously give away to help alleviate some of the needs in your community. As I mentioned, we have a justice and mercy team here at the Hallows who are always looking for volunteers. And there is also the Union Gospel Mission that have been doing great work in Seattle for years and who are another great organization to plug in with. So there's just a few ideas of how we can make conscious lifestyle changes which will give us a surplus of money, time and resources that we can use to be a blessing to the city of Seattle. I would urge you to spend time in prayer about how you could implement some of these practices in a way that fits with the unique season that God has you in right now. Secondly, Nehemiah used his position to serve. Rather than lording it over the people, he rolled up his sleeves to continue building the wall. Let's ask, where has God placed me? What position has he given me? How has he graced me to serve others? A Christian charity in the UK, helping people out of crippling debt, was started by one accountant who used his skill set to write people achievable budget plans that, if followed, would help people get debt-free. The charity is now spreading into multiple and thousand, into multiple, multiple countries, and thousands of people have not only achieved financial stability, but have also met the Lord along the way. How can we get creative with the skills, the influence, and the contacts that we have? How would our unique position enable us to meet a pressing need? Does your workplace have any initiatives which specifically aim to help the vulnerable. Let's be asking God for ways to use the positions we hold in our communities for good. Thirdly, how can we show the lavish generosity of God the Father through hosting dinner parties and inviting people from every walk of life? Our dining tables might not be the size of Nehemiah's, which somehow fit 150 people around, but that's not the point. Nehemiah used what he had. The fact that his dinner parties are more impressive than ours 
That doesn't matter at all. The question is, what can we give? Be that much or little. How can we be generous with what we have and invite people to sit with us, share a meal with us, and grow in community with us? As necessary as, necessary as it is to alleviate people's financial and physical needs, it's also so important that we ask God for opportunities to meet people's relational needs. In Luke 14, 13, Jesus said, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the, the, lame, the lame, sorry, and the blind. Let's make our dining tables a place that brings the vulnerable into the warmth of fellowship, friendship, and family. And lastly, what matters is what God thinks of us. You see, what we can offer to those in need, it may look unimpressive compared to others. We may not be Jamsetji Tata who donated 104.4 billion to charitable causes, currently the record holder. But when all is said and done, the only thing that matters is God's assessment of our lives. Nehemiah cared about how God saw his charity and his good works and no one else. So, so we, even if what we do goes unnoticed on a human level, God sees and he delights in us when we imitate his generous heart. So, chapter 5 has confronted us with the brokenness of our world. We've drilled down into the problems. We've seen the Bible's conclusion to those problems. And that the Bible is correct in its assessment that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We celebrated the fact that Jesus has the power to change our hearts. And though we still sin, we are being transformed day by day. We recognize that, like Nehemiah, we are, we are living in the now and the not yet as we wait for the consummation of our transformation when Jesus returns and takes us to be with him in glory forever. And we've pondered how to live in the now and the not yet, faced with the societal breakdown and suffering we see. So may God make us those who are willing to count the cost so that we have more to give away, knowing that God delights in a cheerful giver. Why don't you pray with me? God, thank you that your word um, in so many ways comforts us, but in so many ways it's challenging to us. It, it often can kind of wake us up like a cold glass of water in the face, and this is one of those passages in the Bible, uh, Nehemiah 5, where we are confronted with brokenness, we're confronted with suffering. We're, we're confronted with all the things that, we, that make us cry out, how long, O oh Lord? And we know that it's, a com it's complex, Lord. We know that the human heart is, um, is, is a, um, an incurable thing in, a, in, human, in human terms. And that, it, it, that is our greatest need. Um, 
to have someone go to work in our hearts who has the power to do so. And I thank you so much, Lord, that you have the power to change our hearts. Thank you that um, we're born again in you. And I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit as well, um, living in us, animating us, God. Um, we know that it's, uh, it's a tension to hold that, that, we have, that we have all these truths, but yet we still are stuck in cycles of sin. And I, I just do pray, Lord, that you'd help us all to stay, stay in step with the Spirit to stay close to you um, and enjoy uh, the, trans- the transforming work that you're doing in us. Pray that you'd make us more like Jesus every day. And I pray, Lord, that as we think about uh, what chapter 5 has to teach us about how to engage with, um, with the brokenness in our communities, Lord, I just pray that we would um, we ponder Nehemiah's example. Uh, thank you that he didn't concern himself with things that he couldn't change, but he was proactive with all the things that he could change. And I thank you, God, that he gives us just such a, a great example of, um, of how to be generous and how to be on the front foot and intentional about, um, about caring for others in our, in our city and in our world. So, Heavenly Father, would you um, just massage all these truths into us, God? Um, would we more and more um, reflect you um, in every, yeah, every aspect of our lives? In Jesus' name. Amen.